you could not do what I have done today. Okay, it'd be impossible. It takes a really strong mayor in order to do those kinds of things. And Vera Katz was. Neil and Vera. Yeah. They're the two. And we've not had anybody come close to them. Mm. Nor do they have the tools now today. You know, the once, once PDC, once the city got a hold of the checkbook, that was the end of PDC. From the studios of Kink Radio, it's the Portland 50, a podcast series about the people who dreamt, built, and championed the innovation, growth, and uniqueness of Portland. The Portland 50 series is brought to you by Jaguar Land Rover Portland. One company, two iconic brands. Jaguar Land Rover Portland is a Don Rasmussen company, the legendary Portland institution serving our community since 1950. I'm your host, Peggy LaPointe. Today, I talk with Homer Williams, a real estate developer for more than 40 years. Homer was instrumental in the success of the Pearl District and South Waterfront. He's now focusing his time and energy on his nonprofit, Harbor of Hope, and is looking to be an integral part in helping to solve our homeless crisis. I was very young, and it was the first project of any serious size that I'd ever looked at. I gave a guy a note for $25,000. I think the only thing that I owned was a five-year-old Volkswagen Bug. And he gave me an option. And, you know, I worked very hard. (laughs) (laughs) And ended up closing on the last day, at almost the last hour of the day. And a process, we were just going through a lot of changes in land use laws. And we were involved many steps of the way, not willingly. but And so it took almost 13 years before we were able to get the necessary zoning and in place. 13 years uh, is a long time. Were you almost ready to give up? It is a long time. Yeah. Fortunately, the price was very attractive. I think it was $1,500 an acre, and we had a long-term contract with it. A funny story is I ended up with partners from uh, the Philippines and Hong Kong. One of the Philippine partners, he was an American who stayed there after the war. After about three years, (laughs) he comes to town and he said, Homer, who do we pay off? And I said, Lou, you go to the Hooskow here if you uh, <laughs> if you pay anybody off. And then fast forward another year, he comes to town. He goes, Homer. He said, Who do we kill? <laughs> <laughs> and anyway, it was a long, long journey. And unfortunately, Lou was about my age now, <laughs> and so he wasn't going to be there when we finally started. Anyway, it was Forest Heights is interesting because Neil was, Goldsmith was the mayor then. Mm -hmm. And I offered him two options. I said, look, we can develop another Dunthorpe, Mm -hmm. large lots, big houses, and uh, or we can develop what really a, a good urban development could look like that's single family. A neighborhood. Mm-hmm. A neighborhood. And so he said, Homer, I want housing. 
And I said, Neil, you're going to get crucified because the people that are opposing this are all your friends and neighbors, you know, the people in northwest Portland. And it had been like a private park forever. Mm. And uh, he said, don't worry. He said, I'll be there when you need it. And we used to, in the beginning of this, when we would go to these meetings, um, they'd be in school auditoriums. Mm. I mean, it'd be packed with people. And of course, I'm pretty young then. And, you know, I remember I was standing outside and the attorneys and planners were giving their little talk. And this little woman walks up and we're just sitting there and she says, look at those people down there. She said, those developers, I can just smell them. (laughs) (laughs) And we eventually were successful in Forest Heights. You know, it's become a wonderful neighborhood. Yeah, there's 1,126 homes 676 condos and 160 apartments. Yeah. And I know folks that live in that neighborhood and have lived in that neighborhood. Yeah. Yeah. And what differentiated that was most development just leapfrogged out. Mm-hmm. Developers take the safest action, which is buy a farm that's flat, drag out services to it, and crank out houses. Mm-hmm. A hillside development is much more difficult, right. it's more expensive. And so we really pioneered that concept, Mm -hmm. which ultimately was really necessary because of the urban growth boundary. You had a couple of other developments, including uh, Broken Top development in Bend, Mm -hmm. and then into the 90s when, it was 1994, I think, you bought 40 acres in northwest Portland, what we now know, or actually then it was Pearl District. 1997, you began the development there. Uh, I've been in Portland since 89, 90, Mm -hmm. and I lived in Northwest, so I would walk down to the Pearl District before it became what it is, and I'm no developer, I'm no architect, I never could have imagined all the changes that could happen there. You you definitely had to have seen something before you started that. You know, it's interesting, but in the 80s, I had developed a hotel in the Caribbean. Mm -hmm. And so I would travel back through New York quite a bit. And I'd noticed how the old warehouse districts and things like that were being converted and developed. And uh, I've always been kind of a demographic freak. I think demographic kind of rules. Mm -hmm. And up to that point, I had made my money primarily from baby boomers. So apartments in the 70s and housing in the 80s and bigger housing in the 90s and golf courses. And of course now we're bulldozing golf courses. You can't sell big houses, but people had been talking about building, you know, uh, office buildings there uh, or warehousing there. And I... I'd met with Vera, you know, she really, and she's from New York, Mm -hmm. and what really excited her was the possibility of an urban neighborhood. I thought it would work, but it was important that there were certain things that would be in place. We were looking at the streetcar at that time. Right. In fact, I was the first private signatory on the streetcar. 
and the necessity of parks and things like that, mm-hmm. and then affordable housing. So there was a lot to be worked out. Well, and also, you've got Lovejoy coming off the Broadway Bridge. Had to Bridge. come down. That was that ramp uh, was yeah. That was drug alley. Yeah, under there. Yeah, and PDC was at its best at that time. Mm-hmm. They made a good partner, and their word was good, and they had money. And so, you know, it was truly a public-private effort. It's kind of funny because I thought the streetcar, I kind of was thinking about San Francisco and funny hats and ding, ding, <laughs> ding. Ringing the bell. Yeah. <laughs> what I didn't realize, and this is what led to South Waterfront, mm-hmm. was that it would become an economic engine. Right. Charlie Hales, when he was a commissioner, called me one day and asked me out to lunch, and he said, Homer, you know, the city's got $50 million that it would invest in South Waterfront. Hmm. Would you consider going down there and starting something? And so I went down looked around and thought about it and called him up and said, Charlie, not in a million years. And that was the sort of the idea. The, the impression uh, that a lot of developers had, I, you know, I remember the discussions down there and nobody wanted to touch that for mm-hmm. the longest time. Uh, but it was important to the city because of OHSU. They It was wanted. the most, uh, South Waterfront is Portland's future. Right. And it will be for the next two decades. What changed my mind was once I saw what was happening, what I didn't like about South Waterfront is it was an island. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was really disconnected from Hard to get everything. To. Yes. And uh, and then once I saw the impact the streetcar was having and that the streetcar was going to go all the way down to South Waterfront, mm-hmm. then it changed my mind. So then I went up and talked to Pete Kohler and asked him what OHSU's plan were. And he said, we're out of land. We have to expand. There there were two choices. One was South Waterfront, but they had to have a connection. Right. And then the other was the monkey farm out in Beaver. Yep. And in fact... Phil Knight's $500 million would be sitting out there right now if that tram wasn't there. But when I looked at the streetcar and looked at the tram, you know, it's it's almost like a, it's a little, it's a V. But if you take Portland State mm-hmm. and you take OHSU mm-hmm. and you take the 20,000 people that would be down there working and living just in our developments and theirs, that's 60, 65,000 people connected within 12 minutes in education and research. Yeah. I mean, it was magic. Right. Everything was there. It, it just, yes, it just all came together that way. I would imagine, because after you worked on the development of the Pearl District, you had a reputation with Vera Katz as someone who could get something done, Forest Heights, Pearl District. So when you went in, and you were the first developer to buy property there, North McAdam, mm-hmm. right? South McAdam? 
How long did it take for others to follow suit, to get on the bandwagon? Well, actually, it was kind of interesting because there were two large property holders, Mm -hmm. which was Snitzer and Zydell. Mm -hmm. And uh, and neither one of those were thinking along the lines that I was thinking of. And then there was, uh, we bought a 10-acre parcel, and then we bought a 20-acre, and then a Mm 4-acre. Before we did that, I then went, the city and OHSU didn't get along very well. You know, institutions have pretty sharp elbows. But Vera was really excited about it. So I got her and... This is a funny story. So Vera and Pete and myself, we had graded some land down in South Waterfront. We had, at that point, 10 acres and an option on another 20. Mm-hmm. And planted some seed and invited them down at dusk and had a little tent <laughs> and a guy cooking salmon. And, <laughs> and so we had, you know, dinner. And then... Uh, Jim Atkins in our office, he had arranged these Klieg lights. And then and we had some of the equipment that had worked on it all lined up, mm-hmm. like soldiers. And then when he turned it on, you know, a light, you, you could see just the beginning of the green there. And then there was a tower that was 250 feet tall, and mm-hmm. we had a light on that. That was a transmission line that went through there that we took down. <laughs> and so I said, Pete, that's your office, 250 feet up. You know, you can watch over everything. Wow. And then Vera, that's your greenway. <laughs> <laughs> and so it was kind of a love fest after uh-huh. that. Everybody, let's get it done. Well, there's a quote that uh, Mayor Katz, I, I read. Uh, she said, this is the biggest, most complicated deal the city has ever done. I think she put a lot of trust in you, like I said, after the Pearl District. Well, uh, you got to remember, you know, my partner, Dyke Dame, yeah. played probably the most important role mm. because it was Dyke that negotiated the development agreement. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty good about dreaming. I'm not. You're the, you're the vision guy. He's the, he's, he's the implementer. Uh-huh. And, you know, it was. It took a lot of work because there was a lot of, con, you know, competing interests in it. Mm-hmm. And, of course, Idell at that time, wasn't really interested in getting involved. And But one good thing happened. Snitzers donated their land to OHSU. So we could really, I call it, plan the neighborhood mm-hmm. in its entirety, but build around those that were not ready to do anything yet. Right. And because so that allowed us t- to make the necessary decisions. And now, of course, Zydell's fully engaged, and they're, he'll do a great job. Yeah. And he's got a terrific guy that he hired from the East Coast. So It's been interesting watching that development happen as you are on, you know, I-5, going north and south and every once in a while you drive by and see something else that's happening and then I was uh, in the OHSU building last fall again after not being there for a couple of years and with 
with the bridge, with all the development that had happened in just two years, yeah. uh, the streetcar and, and everything else, it, is, it has more of a neighborhood feel to it now than it did a few years ago even. Well, you know, unfortunately, people always think developers are all rich and only make money <laughs> at everybody else's expense. But this is a good example of something. We had agreed to the city that we would develop just under a billion dollars worth of taxable real estate. Mm -hmm. And we put our land at risk with that agreement. The good news is we built a billion dollars worth of real estate. The bad news is we finished it in 2007. That was my next. And we, and we lost, us, our investors, we all lost everything that we had invested. Yeah, when the economy. Yeah, I mean, it was brutal. Yeah. And now, the flip side of it is, it's worth it. I mean, when I say it's the future, it is the future of the city. How, what do you mean by that? I just love what I do. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, believe me, nobody likes losing money. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, it's, it's the business that I'm in, there's a lot of risk in it. Mm -hmm. And if you have trouble sleeping at night, don't get in this business. You know, you got to be built to, right. to take the good with the bad. Nerves of steel. It can be very good when it's good, and it can be very bad when it's bad. Looking back on these three projects we just talked about, what are you most proud of with each of them, and what would you do? You have any things that, that you would change out of either, uh, out of any of them? You know, I don't think so. I mean, they're all organic; mm -hmm. they evolve. Yeah, the pearl is certainly different now than when we started. Mm -hmm. I don't think. Uh, I didn't anticipate we'd be having taller buildings, that type of thing. I learned a lot, and that is it's not about the buildings. Architects and developers, they love the buildings. Mm -hmm. But the reality of it is it's what is it like 30 feet and below because mm -hmm. that's where people live and engage. And it's about restaurants, and it's about bars. It's about people living their life. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the things that was disappointing in South Waterfront. We didn't reach that critical mass. Now, it's getting there. Right. And it will, and it'll be fine. But that was a disappointment. And the recession, I'm sure, played a huge part. That's one thing huge I definitely part. noticed between those couple of years that I hadn't been there is this past fall, it felt like a neighborhood. People walking around the streets, yeah. people going to the park, going to the restaurants. And how much of the Tillicum Crossing do you think played into that? Well, I, th I think there's no question. First of all, this is a bicycle town. Yeah. And so I love that. I also think when you look at OMSI, it's going to be an extension of South Waterfront. Mm -hmm. And so I think Tillicum, uh, you know, bringing, you know, the east side, grand and below into play, mm -hmm. I think is great. And that offers the connection. It's all about connections. Right. 
I right. mean, that's really important. And uh, I, I think it's attractive, and I think it's doing what they wanted it to do. Yeah, it's played out as they had planned it. Yeah. What, what do you think are the next developments that are going to happen in the Portland area? Do you think East Waterfront, the east, close in the east side, is the next thing or further out? Portland is running out of land. And so also you could not do what I have done today. Okay, it'd be impossible. It takes a really strong mayor in order to do those kinds of things. And Vera Katz was. Neil and, and Vera. Neil, yeah. They're the two. And we've not had anybody come close to them. Mm-hmm. Nor did they have the tools now today. Right. You know, the once, once PDC, once the city got a hold of the checkbook, that was the end of PDC. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, they made long-term investments, long-term decisions, and suddenly... They're told to do a lot of things that would not enable those bigger investments to be made. Mm-hmm. And that was, that, that was a tragedy. You're listening to King's Portland 50 series. I'll continue my conversation with Homer Williams in a moment, but I wanted to thank our sponsor. The Portland 50 series is presented by Jaguar Land Rover Portland. One company, two iconic brands. Jaguar Land Rover Portland is a Don Rasmussen company, the legendary Portland institution serving our community since 1950. Now back to my conversation with Homer Williams, a real estate developer for more than 40 years. Homer was instrumental in the success of the Pearl District and South Waterfront. He's now focusing his time and energy on his nonprofit, Harbor of Hope, and is looking to be an integral part in helping to solve our homeless crisis. Urban Growth Boundary. It was a great concept. It was a great tool. It got politicized, and it's been choking us to death for 15 years. Hmm. What would you change about that? Well, it's a classic supply and demand. Right. You know, they always say, well, there's infill lots everywhere. There's this, there's that. We need scale. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, it's not like we're having a few people move to town. And it's a classic supply and demand. I bought the Forest Heights land for 1,500 an acre. We were selling it at 20,000 in the late 80s. Right. And then we were, you know, the same property was 400,000 in the late 90s. There's stuff now at 600,000. Well, you're going to get very expensive homes. That's the way that it is. And so Metro was the classic long-term planning. They all go to the same cocktail parties, and they all took the same planning courses. And, you know, what they didn't do is study demographics and what was going to be required. You know, I mean, I've always thought the long-term planning's not been very good. And then we have the changes that nobody expected. The growth. The growth. Uh, but we have more coming. Uh, when you have self-driving cars, self-driving trucks, all of a sudden you're going to need a lot less in the way of parking lots. Mm-hmm. You're going to probably have a negative impact on public transportation. 
people are going to be willing to live further out because they're going to be working as they're coming in. What was working 15, 20 years ago is not what's going to be working, or even today is not what's going to be working 15 years from now. What do you think needs to change? Well, that kind of leads into uh, what I'm doing now. Mm-hmm. We as a country are going to go through a change that we're not prepared for at all. I got involved in the chronic homeless probably two and a half years ago, and I'd never really thought about it. Mm-hmm. And I was in San Antonio, and I had a few hours before a flight and went out to see this place called Haven for Hope. And and for the life of me, I don't know even why I did it. I was about to it. ask you why you did it. Yeah, that's yeah. a good question. <laughs> yeah. But what I saw was pretty remarkable, and it was... Uh, a campus for people who were just needed a place to be and that was about half of it 750 people and then another 750 people going through treatment Mm -hmm. 160 kids living there as their one or their other parents were going through treatment and their success rate was staggering and uh over 90% that graduated did not return. And the base mark was a year. One caveat, they had to be able to move them into housing. If they couldn't, then their outcomes weren't any better than anybody else's. Anyway, I had a grand plan I wanted to do on Terminal 1, and I got beat. Right. (laughs) And so that made me start looking into really how big the problem was. And then I realized how big it was going to be, and it's staggering. So we have 4 million baby boomers every year turning 65. 2 million of them are broke. Mm -hmm. This is going to go on for 15, 17 years. They'll live on $1,100 a month, they will have Medicaid, hopefully Medicare, hopefully. They're the lucky ones. The outlier in this whole thing is job destruction. It is relentless, and it's across all businesses, the medical profession, mm-hmm. architects, retail, middle management, Anything that's repetitive, they can do. And it's hitting the baby boomers the hardest because they're not wired for the new jobs. And so we have millions of people over just the next few years who are going to be either out of work. And these are people who worked all their lives, mm-hmm. and they thought they were going to work till they're 75. Right, paid into the system. That's right. So the impact is going to be overwhelming to really all cities. The West Coast is already feeling it. Mm -hmm. And it's going to get worse next year and the year after and the year after. What got us there? It's two things. One was the 401k, and that was a time bomb. And we're a nation of consumers, not savers. And once you got away from defined benefit plans, that was 
game over. We just didn't know it. But affordable housing, too. That issue really got politicized, Mm -hmm. and we kept cutting back on subsidized housing. What we didn't realize is the demand for it was suddenly going to rocket. Because if you're living on 1,000 or 1,200 a month, which is what these people are going to be living on, then you've got to have housing at 400 a month, 500 a month. That's before insurance. I mean, you know, I mean, these people are going to be destitute. And so it's the working poor that are the ones that is going to grow so fast. We will have shelters in every neighborhood of the city just in the next few years. And neighborhoods are going to have to embrace it. Right. And they're going to know some of the people in those shelters. They're going to be very surprised. So let me ask you, going back to the developments that you did with the, um, with the Pearl District and South Waterfront, the recession certainly hit South Waterfront when it came to the number of units of affordable housing that were supposed to be in. There were 400 that were supposed to be in. 209 were complete. Now, that number might not be up to date. That was the number that I saw. And with the Pearl District, the, the, the agreement was 35% would be affordable housing, and you hit 28%. So you've come around, you you know. It's actually uh, higher than Is that it higher number. than that now? Yeah. Great. Yeah. So as a developer, <clears throat> sort of coming around to seeing the problem of the need for shelters and affordable housing and, and the crisis with homelessness, you're now working on a number of different other projects, uh, much different than, than those. Tell me about the Navigation Center the, under the Broadway Bridge. Well, you know, I spent my life being responsible for thousands and thousands of housing units. What's interesting is I just have a different client today. Yeah. And it's a different form of finance. And so <laughs> the good thing is I get more satisfaction out of this than any building I ever built. Mm-hmm. So we've got big problems. We're going to have to redefine what housing is. Right. We can't solve it alone. It will take a Marshall Plan for our own country before we're done. We spend $8 billion a year in the 70s on subsidized housing. That would be the equivalent of $30 billion today, and we'll spend $1.6 billion. Mm. We've been digging a hole for a long time. And we didn't realize, like I said, the outlier was the job destruction. Right. So Technology at a price. Uh, a big price. Yeah. It's not that we're not going to have a good economy. Right. You know, in the end, <laughs> this is going to come about redistributing wealth. We're going to have no choice. We're going to have, uh, first of all, millions of people who just won't have jobs. Mm-hmm. And um, and so we'll have to adjust our lifestyle. Having the job is not necessarily going to be the most important thing. So I think we get to a universal check mm. that everybody gets, and that would cover a roof, food, medical care. And if you want to work and move up the food chain, you can, and many will. Mm-hmm. 
But what you can't have is half a dozen guys collectively worth a trillion dollars. Nobody's worth a trillion dollars. <laughs> Nobody's worth a billion dollars, frankly. Nobody. You know, I know it sounds like it's I'm a socialist suddenly. <laughs> you know, my Republican friends are. Anyway, um, but really it's going to be a combination of that and capitalism. Mm -hmm. What would you like to see Portland do as a community? Well, uh, and our goal has been uh, we have to have a call to arms, yeah. a call to action. I've always said if you don't quantify what the problem is and the magnitude of it, you'll just keep doing the same stuff over and over. Right. And so I think if people understand the problem and you give them a plan, you know, I learned that people will buy into a plan and you don't have to do it all mm -hmm. tomorrow. And so what we have been doing with Oregon Harbor of Hope, by the way, we take donations happily. What we've been doing is working with some doctors from Legacy. Mm -hmm. They pulled together 60 doctors and nurses. Then they're going to work with, we're launching a shower truck, a laundry truck, and then a, a pet veterinary mm -hmm. truck. Nice. They'll collectively go to camps. They'll probably spend a third of their time at schools. You have mm -hmm. 4,000 kids in the greater Portland area, Portland, Beaverton, Washington County, Multnomah County, that have a no address. Yeah. They're living in vans and camps, and it's totally unacceptable for a city like this to have that happen. And the Harbor of Hope is a nonprofit that you started. Yes. And one of the projects is that navigation center. Yes. Tim Boyle gave us a yeah. $1.5 million dollar donation. And that was recent. That was this spring, wasn't it? Yep. Mm -hmm. And we'll open it in October. And uh, we're raising now uh, the operating funds for it. We're about halfway there. Uh, it's going to be about a million three to a million five this year mm -hmm. for one year. And um, a navigation center is not just a shelter. Right. And what that does is help navigate people to the right services, to the right health providers, if they're ready for it, into housing, whatever. Point them in the right direction. Yes. And help them along the way. And we have Blanchet House, Union Gospel Mission, Catholic Charities, Impact Northwest. These are all contributing time, money, food. Mm-hmm. And then uh, TPI, uh, transitional projects, uh, they're going to manage it in conjunction with these people. Mm -hmm. And then we're doing the studies on Wapato, and we'll see what could be done with that. Now, let me ask you about that, because I remember in April when the Multnomah County Commissioners turned down your offer to buy Wapato for $7 million. And then they sold it for $5 million to Keyhole Northwest Properties, who then sold the control of the jail to Jordan Schnitzer. I was reading this last night going, how did, I, how did that all slip under my radar? So to Jordan Schnitzer, 
who plans to let Harbor of Hope lease the site. And your hope with that site is a thousand folks being sheltered in the jail and about a thousand who will camp out. Yeah, those numbers, right? the, uh, the numbers aren't quite there. Yeah, but, but that's what you're researching right now. <laughs> Number one is the county has always had concern. Yeah. It's a jail. Mm-hmm. It's a long ways away from right. services. I'm not an expert in this stuff. Mm-hmm. But to me, there's a $60 million facility there. Unused. And we got people living in bushes all over town. But we need some outside expert help, which we're bringing in, Yeah. to study three things. The cost to open the doors. Mm-hmm. What programs could or should go in there. Homelessness, houselessness, it's, it's not one size fits all. We're talking about medical or mental issues which often lead to the drug and alcohol issues we're talking about the working poor we're talking about i mean there's a a wide range Mm -hmm. and there's different gradations especially in the mental health area and so you know who would be the service providers Mm -hmm. and who should the client be Mm -hmm. that's the real question and is it is it feasible there to accomplish some of the things that we're trying to accomplish? Right. It's not really a jail. It's a dormitory. It was meant to be a, a rehabilitation center for felons. And so, you know, we'll know in a couple months. Yeah. If it does work out that that is a feasible location... Would you envision something similar to the Navigation Center where there are resources in-house? Well, the Navigation Center brings resources in. Mm -hmm. We would have resources on site. Yeah. At Haven for Hope, they have uh, medical, dental, mental, veterinary services Mm 24-7 on site true transformational center. I've never been a believer you should just put somebody in a house and occasionally send two or three times a week somebody to, if you've got serious mental issues or addiction issues, I, I don't, I think your chance of success is pretty low. Yeah. But I think that a group of people, and this is what I saw at Haven, together with common goals mm-hmm. and with support system. At right. Haven, they have 40 nonprofits on site. Wow. They have a tracking system. You check in. You've checked in with all the nonprofits, so mm-hmm. they all have the information, the ERs, and the police department. So these people can get help. They're not trying to navigate to five different locations to get different types right. of help. I mean, it's, it's... Easily accessible. Yes. They reduce their homelessness on the street by 80%. Do you think some of that has to do with the more affordable housing in San Antonio? Do you think the, the, the yes. housing is going to be much more of a challenge here? Yes, it will be. Yeah. Now, at Wapato, we can take in about 500 people. Mm-hmm. But there's room to build 
another five or 600 units of transitional housing that we could build out there. Because it's 18 acres, correct? It's, uh, yeah, the building takes four acres and then there's 14 acres. So there is space available. Oh, absolutely. If that doesn't work out, do you have a backup area that might? Well, I'm looking at two that I can't mention because we're still negotiating. (laughs) And uh, then we also have, uh, and this gets a little complicated, so I don't, well, I'll go ahead and. Broadmoor Golf Course is privately right. owned. Right. It's zoned. Industrial. Uh, no, open oh. space. Okay. And the only land that we have in any volume is industrial. But because we don't have an adequate supply, we're not allowed by state law to use it for other uses. Right. And so somebody has offered to donate Broadmoor to us. The family that owns it, they've owned it for 100 years, subject to us getting it rezoned. That would enable them to take a tax deduction. And that would allow us to selectively go around the various industrial areas that are close to residential areas and take land out of the industrial supply. That could allow us to build another twelve or fifteen thousand affordable housing units throughout the city. Throughout the city, we still got to figure out how we're going to finance it. Right. But it, it it always starts with the land. If you don't have the land, you can't. There's no solution. Right. And so this would, and all of that, any land brought in would have to be dedicated a hundred percent for affordable housing. That's the plan. So you got your work cut out for you. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's no different than every, anything I've ever done. So. And you've been patient with all of the oh, other projects. Oh, you got to have patience <laughs> in anything. <laughs> Definitely. So. Thank you yep. for coming in to talk with me today. I, I had one more thing, though, that crossed my mind, and that is there had to have been something going on with you a couple of years ago when you decided to go see this facility in San Antonio. I have to think that the winds of change <laughs> and how you were looking at things well, were happening prior to that. Well, it changed then. Yeah. I mean, you know, I really don't know. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. But, and, you know, I'll, uh, just a quick aside, you know, they were going to originally open the shelter at the other side of the tracks underneath the Broadway Bridge, and we were just opening a hotel. And I thought, oh, my God, half our business is women, and we're going to have all of these problems. Mm-hmm. And uh, But my partner came up with a very good idea, which we bought the land underneath the tracks yeah. and then paid the city a significant amount of money. I think it was eight or 900000 that they could use uh, to move R2-D2. Right. And now I'm building a shelter. <laughs> right in the place that you didn't think you <laughs> Almost, wanted one. <laughs> yeah, well, it's across the tracks, but it's, you know, 100 feet or 200 feet away. We all have to get involved, yeah. everybody. And if we do it well and if we embrace these, we're going to be proud of these things. That's the important thing. The collective effort. Yeah, yeah. So 
Well, I wish you a lot of luck in that. (laughs) And I mean that sincerely. No. Because I think this would be something that Portlanders would look back on. If Portland can do a better job than everybody else, and I think we can, it'll be good for business. Right. Companies will want to come here. Because they'll know we take care of them. Absolutely. And we're going to feel better about ourselves as a community. Thank you, Homer. Yep. Thank you for joining me for my conversation with Homer Williams. If you've missed any of the previous podcasts, you can find them at our website at kink.fm. Be sure to like and subscribe to the Portland 50 podcast wherever you're listening. The Portland 50 is a podcast series celebrating Kink's 50th anniversary, and it's about the people who dreamt, built, and championed the innovation, growth, and uniqueness of Portland. The series is presented by Jaguar Land Rover Portland. One company, two iconic brands. Jaguar Land Rover Portland is a Don Rasmussen company, the legendary Portland institution serving our community since 1950.